So now that we've completed the the ritual uh, part of baptism, let's just step back for one second and say, you know, who is the one that would be in charge of baptizing, mm-hmm. and and who's the person being baptized? You know, what ki- what kinds of people would get baptized? Yeah, that's it. It is certainly under de- uh, in debate. Yeah, uh, but. If we're going by the scriptures in these first century documents, um, it seems that the baptizers were the charismatic leaders of the community. So in the scriptures, who do we hear that is baptizing? We hear the apostles were baptizing. We hear St. Paul was baptizing. We hear uh, Apollos yeah. was baptizing. Remember, it says Apollos watered. Mm-hmm. Right? So so St. Paul laid the seed or, or spread the faith, and then Apollos Paul's watered. God caused the growth. Right, God caused the growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to be the leaders of the communities that are, are baptizing. Um, now, there's a reference in Ignatius of Antioch. So St. Ignatius has these letters he writes in the early 2nd century, 107 or so. And he says that a baptism can only take place with the bishop present, mm-hmm. with the overseer there. Mm-hmm. doesn't say that the bishop has to be the one baptizing. just says the bishop has to be the one overseeing this okay. uh, ritual. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't be, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be surprised though, if there were some lay people that were in charge of baptizing under the oversight. So here's the thing. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing. Exactly. So it's under, it's under the oversight of the bishop. Um, there's a early uh, document in the second century called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Mm-hmm. And in this document, Thecla is um, actually baptizes herself because there's nobody to baptize her. Mm. So she is, she's in the nude and she jumps in and then she later meets Paul and says, oh yeah, I took the bath. Um, Tertullian speaks of uh, baptisms in, in times of crisis that, or necessity where anyone can baptize in those instances where there's, you know, there's nobody else around. There's not yeah. a presbyter, there's not a bishop, but this person wants to be baptized. Then mm-hmm. a lay person in those instances could then mm-hmm. baptize. Yeah. Um, so you, you definitely get that. So then um, what about the subject of the baptism, the one being baptized? So what types of people are permitted to come to the I get into it. (laughs) Um, So obviously adults are being baptized. Oh Um, boy, don't say it. Don't say it, Danny. (laughs) Adults are being baptized. Um, uh, Younger adults are being baptized. Um, See what he's doing? Children are probably being baptized. Uh Uh-oh. And likely that infants are also Whoa, being baptized. Big claim. Um, yeah, it, no, it is it is a big claim uh, because of the controversy. So, why am I why am I saying that? So if if you if you look in the scriptures it says that whole households were being baptized. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm just going to read this really quickly and then we'll talk about the context. So in the book of Acts, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshipper of God was listening to the preaching. Mm -hmm. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she then hosted the church. Mm -hmm. What's interesting here is that it begins with Lydia herself. She's the one listening. Yeah. She's the one hearing the word of God. It's her heart that's opened up. Mm -hmm. And then it says her household was baptized with her. Cornelius is another one. Yeah. So I think, again, this speaks to, first off, the objectivity, the objective power of baptism. God is the one who is baptizing, and he will cause the growth yeah. if he wants it to. Yeah. The context here is the Roman culture context mm-hmm. of the paterfamilias or the patron or patroness. Patron-client system, too, and everything. Exactly. Yeah. When, when, when a patron or a patroness, in this case, Lydia, she's clearly the leader of her household. She's a domina. Yeah. Yep. 
when she's baptized and she accepts the faith, her household is baptized mm-hmm. and accepts the faith. Okay. Now, were children included in that household? Maybe. Yeah. Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, were slaves included in that? Yes. That's okay, okay. So let's stop there for a second because when when whenever this argument is used in the Protestant Catholic debate, the Protestants will usually like th- what they're doing is they're thinking of the word household in the modern context, where it's like your blood relative. Like you know, I have a, a mom and a dad, children. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Roman household was a lot of people. <laughs> when when it's talking about the household, it's talking about not only the children, but you're talking about all the extended slaves, fa- extended family, extended slaves, family members, servants. I mean, you're talking this could be up to 100 people in a, it, depending on the size of the of the villa or how much money the person has, but you have a you have a domina, a dominus and you have the household, mm-hmm. <laughs> which in part sometimes explains the 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 consistent growth of the Christian movement. Yeah, yeah, because the religion of the Dominus, the religion of the Lord of the House, the Father, the Pater Familias, is the religion of the slaves. Yep. It's the religion of the children. It's the religion of all of them. Yeah. So you know we can we can surmise and say, well, the rest of the household probably had faith, but what they're doing is they're putting their trust in their patron yes. or their patroness. Yes. Right. And and by doing that. They also are received into the faith. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a sense here of vicariousness, mm-hmm. and, and and you see that elsewhere in the scripture, right? The the Roman soldier he says to Jesus, you know, my servant's sick. Jesus says, I'll come to your house, and he said, No, no, you don't need to. Mm-hmm. Jesus is like, Wow, what faith? Your servant's healed. Go home. Yeah, and the same with so, Saint Paul, where he says, like, you know, and the unbelieving spouse will be sanctified, sanctified. through the believing spouse. Yeah. God can work vicariously because of your faith. Towards someone and else. it speaks again to the power of baptism, mm-hmm. like you said, because, and that's why even St. Paul references baptism for the dead, mm-hmm. that there are people out there who are even baptizing on behalf of dead relatives, yeah, some, dead members yeah, of the Roman a lot of, a lot of <laughs> A lot of commentators will, or readers of the scriptures will look over that and say, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to touch that thing. <laughs> but just read it at face value. Yeah. St. Paul is saying there are some Christians out there who baptize on behalf of the dead. Mm-hmm. Again, stressing the objective power, the regenerative power of baptism. And if, and if you go to a Roman household, so if you can fast, or go, not fast forward, rewind, rewind, you <laughs> if rewind, you rewind blah, blah, blah. back to a Roman household and you walk in, there would be a room dedicated to the ancestors. Mm-hmm. There would be a room dedicated to the yeah. ancestors. Well, in the very room that they're uh, baptizing in, the atrium, <laughs> exactly. that's where the, the either statues of the of the paterfamilias, of the patron would be in there. The ancestors, the masks mm-hmm. of the ancestors would be in that room. They're all they're all there. That's right. So that's the context. That's a real context that's there. Um, now, uh, also in this debate, the detractors from infant baptism will say, well, you know, the first reference we ever hear of infant baptism in the church, explicit reference of baptism in the church, comes, comes later. Well, actually, it comes quite early. It comes yeah. from Tertullian, yeah. again, from North Africa, the father of Latin Christianity. And they say, well, see, Tertullian, when he brings it up, he's speaking against it, that mm-hmm. it shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. And just for reference, what, what year are we in? We're, you know, for the treatise on baptism, this is one of his earlier treatises. You're looking somewhere between 195 and 203. Yeah, you did all that hard work in grad <laughs> school. You, you were dating those things. Um, so, so Tertullian's writing this thing, and go read his treatise on baptism. You'll see what he's saying. What he's saying is not that you shouldn't do it. He's, he's, he, not that you can't do it. He's yeah. saying he's discouraging it. Yeah. Now, why is he discouraging infant baptism? Because he holds a rigorous theology when mm-hmm. it comes to sin. Mm-hmm. What Tertullian was teaching was that if you commit mortal sin, you can never be forgiven never again. Never be forgiven again. So yeah. not only was he saying infants should postpone their baptism, <laughs> he was saying children should postpone their baptism, yeah. young adults should postpone their baptism, adults should postpone their baptism. Mm-hmm. 
And so then you, you had a situation in many areas of the church by the time you come to the fourth century where people like Constantine were waiting to be baptized exactly. because they knew they're going to live a life of sin and they want to be baptized in their deathbed. Well, that then is anti-scriptural yeah, because yeah. we see in scripture that you're baptized right away. Yeah, Tertullian was part of a, a, a rigorist party in North Africa um, that that had a very, very harsh view of post-baptismal sin. And it was the same thing that you see later on too with the Novationists. They come along the same exact thing. And so like you're saying, the practice then started to become that people are getting, ba- baptism was like an end of life thing. Yep. And you're like, wait a second. Yeah, wait, that's <laughs> wait not how it was second. originally intended. So yep. to your point, you're saying that the basis upon which Tertullian is objecting to infant baptism is not because they're infants. <laughs> exactly. He's objecting because and, if they sin afterwards, they'll never be forgiven. And quite the opposite is drawn if you're reading it historically. Infant baptism is happening in the early church. Yes. It's a practice that he has to speak to. Mm-hmm. And not just in Tertullian's day. It's happening even earlier, earlier. than Tertullian. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the first actual implicit reference to infant baptism is actually from St. Irenaeus of Lyon. So in early modern day France, where he is speaking about how infants and children are born again. (laughs) There's no other way to be born again as an infant or a child unless he's speaking about baptism. baptism. So all the way in far distant France. Think about that. The yeah. church is 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 practicing infant so baptism. So in the year one in the year one fifty, one sixty, we're talking about in Lyon <laughs> in yeah, France. One, yeah. But now Aranias is not from Lyon, right? Mm-hmm. So he he comes from the east. So but there's no there's no real um there's no idea here that 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 Aranias is it's bringing, innovative. Yeah, yeah, that it's innovative. He's bringing some. <laughs> he's, pra- just, he's just speaking in in passing. He yes. mentions it, which yes. which which tells you that the audience already knows that. Yeah, we, we baptize infants. Information in the ancient world does not move as fast yeah. as it moves. They didn't today. have Twitter yet. Just yes. Yet. So whenever you see a father referencing something that is common practice in a place as far away as Gaul, <laughs> as far away as France, you know then that in order for that practice to have been saturated into that area. It had to have been the practice of at least one to two to three generations before him. Yeah. Now, if you even go just one generation before Irenaeus, one and a half generations before Irenaeus, you're talking about the sub-apostolic era. People who knew people who knew the apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, the, and the other, the other thing to think about um, here is biblical references to children. You know, Jesus says, "Let the children come unto me." Mm-hmm. That's that's common ap- apologetic kind of reference. But yeah. what's very very interesting is that in the catacombs in Rome, so we're talking 2nd, 3rd century, the earliest iconography or paintings of Jesus' baptism portray him as a child. Yeah. It's very... It is weird. Odd. I mean, and there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of meaning to it probably, mm-hmm. um, other than just infants being baptized in the early church. But to portray, again, Jesus mm-hmm. being baptized as a little kid... Um, speaks to well they're at least seeing the image of that this is a possibility yeah in the early church so and even if the painting which i mean there's nobody who doubts that it's a painting of jesus being baptized but even if you were to say well that's not jesus being baptized well you don't win either because (laughs) somebody else being baptized someone else being baptized this this is being practiced and again we can trace it to Mm -hmm. second century and if we're tracing it to the second century then who's to say we can't trace it to the first century exactly that we're talking about um right here so so now kind of go back and re-listen to, with new ears, St. Peter's Peter. first sermon mm-hmm. in the book of Acts in chapter 2. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. Mm-hmm. When you read it with new lens now, the context 
of second century infant baptism happening. Now we're looking at a text and saying, that's a real possibility. And listen to it with first century Jewish ears. Yeah. It's the promises for you and for your children. Mm-hmm. It's like, you am I going to baptize my infant? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was circumcising my infants. Exactly. My infants were welcomed into the community, not by choice, yeah. but by God's objective will. Yeah. Yeah. So same thing here. And you figure that if there was going to be a demarcation between adults and children for baptism in the apostles, they would have mentioned it. They would have. They, they Right there. He would have been like, now, but don't bring the infants <laughs> right? <laughs> because that's yeah. different. And we don't <laughs> see a huge controversy across the church never. about infant baptism. Yeah, never. There's never a time where no. you see this. Besides that Tertullian reference, which yeah. has nothing to do with baptism, it has everything to do with post-baptismal sin. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. There's no There's no big controversy about the, you same know, kind the of thing. infant baptizers yep. are coming around. Same kind of thing with the, with the Eucharist. Yeah. Which is where they're <laughs> headed now after their baptism, right? Right. So after they're baptized, now they're being brought to their first Eucharist. And you made some really weird reference there, Danny, to milk and honey. Oh, I did. I did. Well, the first thing I want to say is that, yes, baptism, somebody's first baptism is tied to their Eucharist. Now, why am I saying milk and honey? All right. So milk and honey is a, 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 a motif from Judaism. What did milk and honey stand for? It stood for inheritance, mm-hmm. that the Jews are promised, the Israelites are promised a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised mm-hmm. land. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. If we think about baptism and you're coming up out of the waters to the new promised land, we see a reference of this in the letter of Barnabas. Again, letter of Barnabas can be dated late first century, early second century. Mm-hmm. He speaks of and alludes to the taking of milk and honey because of inheritance. This also speaks to what we, were, we said last time about adoption. That's a, that's a major motif of baptism, adoption. Adoption in the, in the Roman world was all over the place. They used, it, they used it actually very much how they would use marriage. They used it for political purposes, for economic purposes, maneuvering, right? Yeah. When you were adopted in the Roman world, you inherited everything. You were not a kind of a second-class child. Right. Everything went to you. Mm-hmm. you the, the honor, the prestige, the inheritance went to you. Mm-hmm. Everything. So when we're speaking of baptism as an adoption, okay, these these Christ, these people, these Gentiles are now being adopted in, and the context now is inheritance. Mm-hmm. You're going to be given the inheritance, the new promised land. Yeah. And so you start to see references to milk and honey popping up, mm-hmm. and more sp- explicitly in the early hymn book of the of the church. We mentioned this once before, the Odes of Solomon. Yeah. The Odes of Solomon are a list of these ancient hymns, and scholars will uh, pretty much are agreed now that they were originally written in Aramaic, which pushes it really early. Yeah. Um, Saint Ignatius of Antioch most likely alludes to one of the hymns in his letters, which means you can't date them past his death in 107. Mm-hmm. So we date the Odes of Solomon probably around 100. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just, I, I don't think these, people know this though. I mean, this is just like, yeah. like the first time I ever encountered the Odes of Solomon too. It's like you have... A, a first century Christian hymn book. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> and, and the reason I bring it up in this context is because there are some scholars who will say that the Odes of Solomon are a list of baptismal hymns. Mm-hmm. Go read Ode 4. In Ode 4, it says, Shower upon us your gentle rain and open your bountiful springs, which abundantly supply us with milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ode 30 all this language about springs and water. And all this. So you get the sense that these were hymns for, for, um, for baptism. Mm-hmm. You then have the later practice of giving milk and honey to 
um, to Christians. We see the reference in Clement of Alexandria. We see the reference in Tertullian. Mm -hmm. We see the reference in apostolic traditions. All texts that can be dated to the late second century that into the third century. And these are explicit references. Mm -hmm. So that we see the allusions already there. We know that baptism is about adoption. It's about inheritance. Milk and honey is being given to the baptized yeah. as a as a reference to their inheritance. Yeah. And and I think just to make a, a, a side point, that's why the Didache Eucharist is so different. Um you see, like the, the sco- scholars are usually like they'll look at the Didache and they'll be like, there's no reference to the body and blood of Jesus. There's no reference to like the crucifixion. To the crucifixion. There's nothing right. like that. It's thank you, Lord, for the holy vine of your servant David. Thank you for the life and knowledge that we've received. Uh, it's a very weird Eucharistic prayer. But we would contend it's because this is a baptismal Eucharist. Yeah, this that's is an the proper context text. for the Didache. So people will like scholars will go all over and be like, well, maybe this is like a I don't know, maybe this is like an Alexandrian, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like Eucharistic prayer. It's like, yeah. yeah, maybe, but but really, what's going on is that this is a manual for baptizing and bringing someone into the church. Remember, it's written to the Tseth Nisin. It's written to the Gentiles mm-hmm. to bring them into this adoption. So that's why even this text, we know this text is not characteristic of every, you know, Eucharist, Eucharist that right. was being celebrated. Yeah, this could very much be a different Eucharistic canon or prayer that they're using, but they're referencing life and knowledge. The two ways you have chosen life. Yes. Okay. And then knowledge, illumination, enlightenment, that's baptismal language. That's right. So is that it on the, the milk and honey piece then? Yeah. All right. Good, good. (laughs) So just to close this out, I think there's one broad point that we should make, and that is that Jesus being the Lord of all, what he does is he, he enters into the space, the two spaces where Jews and Gentiles were separated in the ancient world, right? Circumcision and the table. And the table. Yep. And here Jesus inserts baptism and the Eucharist. And all the walls fall and down. And all the walls mm-hmm. fall down. I think it's really interesting that that Jesus sort of hits at the heart of Gentile and Jew separation, which is why St. Paul, after we've come through, you know, the prayers and everything that we've talked about so far, we've talked about the table, we've talked about baptism being all that is needed to bring a Gentile in. And what we have now is the dividing wall of hostility has broken down in the very flesh of Jesus Christ. Amen.